so the brewer can have the same product, you know, ten dollars more in the in the independent versus the Dan Murphy's store, which is as you say, how Dan Murphy's has managed to grow because Dan Murphy's won't absorb that cost that everyone that in another world, and that's market power. Welcome to episode 405 of Brews News Week, recorded today, Thursday the 9th of February 2023. I'm joined by my usual co-hosts, Matt Kirkegaard and Ian Watson. G'day, guys. G'day, Sabrina. How are you? Hey, Sabrina. It's been a, um, it's been a busy week in the, uh, the old brewing industry in Australia, hasn't it? It's meant to start really quiet. January's is the HOSPO you know, holiday month um, when things are meant to be quiet, but in the beer circles, it's... I actually can't remember a more sustained busy period for beer news. Well, cracking into the first one, and um, this is one that for the um, ardent watchers has been ongoing for about a year, Better Beer Wins Federal Court Battle. Yes, this was a story that broke yesterday as we record this. We're recording this on Thursday. It came out Wednesday. Better Beer has successfully defended itself in a federal court action accusing it of misleading or deceptive conduct. In a judgment handed down by Justice Stewart, the court ordered that the case be dismissed with Brick Lane to pay Better Beer's costs. The background of this is both products were released in a fairly close period of time. Uh, The judge found that Brick Lane did not have enough time to establish its market presence before the Better Beer product came in. And in the end, he decided that he was not satisfied that the hypothetical... and. Ladies and gentlemen, you've got to go read this. This is us reporting on a very dense language of a judicial judgment um, that when they talk about the get-up, the the hypothetical reasonable consumer, these are all terms that feature very, very heavily. But in the end, he decided he was not satisfied that the hypothetical reasonable consumer of beer would be familiar with Brick Lane's Sidewinder get-up, but even if they were they would not have been likely to have been misled by the similarity of Better Beer's get-up compared to the Sidewinder get-up and thus thinking that the products were in some way associated. Uh, in a statement, um, Better Beer's co-founder, Nick Cogger, described it as a win for common sense. Um, now, Sabrina, I actually think when this story broke, it was one of the very early podcasts um, that, that, that you joined us on and you and I had very, very different um, points of view. Yeah, I actually remember being quite, um, I don't want to say scathing, but uh, when you looked at the timeline, which is interesting, so that was going to be my observation. So when we looked at the timeline when it first came out, the times were really close, but Brick Lane was technically first. And at the time we had that discussion on the podcast, I basically said, look, even if it isn't, it was just stupid. Why did Better Beer do this? Why didn't they do something different? And what I haven't read the judgment, um, but it's clear there was a lot of evidence that went into the designs and release being done in parallel. The dates so, things were being done and no one was saying that they copied ours or they were aware of ours or anything like that. Right. And I, I guess that's the nature of fashion. Things work because they are inherently fashionable. That's that's exactly right. And that was my thoughts at the time is that, you know, when something's in a trend and uh, I actually quite like the design of both cans 
because that just appeals to me and ha- that sort of design has appealed to me for a, for a very long time. But um, that's become a, a, a little bit more commonly used now and they've both gone down that path. And if you're going for something that's in a popular design use at the time, you've got to expect that probably others are going to do the same thing. <laughs> the, the most interesting comment I saw was one, uh, and I could be paraphrasing, it sort of says, said, one's a racing stripe and the other is a sunset. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> sort of going, well... <laughs> you could have saved a lot of the, the judge a lot of words if you just say that. But it's really interesting because, and so this is, I haven't read the judgment and this is the sort of legal brain in me. I went straight to, so they've obviously focused on the timeline because the net, you need to show misleading and deceptive conduct, which is actually uh, quite challenging to prove because it, it it's not, so there's another um claim that could be made which is called passing off this wasn't about as you say trademark infringement this wasn't about anything else it was uh you are trying to hold out to the consumer that you're associated with our brand and so that that is a um legalistically um something that would be quite difficult to prove and so i was interested in that because i think when we see um as the as the brewing landscape gets more competitive, there are going to be more of these decisions being made by businesses about whether they take legal action. And um, for for various reasons, including trademark infringement. Um, And so it, it will just be really interesting to watch. And there might be some good lessons in this because the legal team from uh, Brick Lane obviously thought it was worth pursuing. So it's it's fascinating. It, it's and and that's the thing. Yeah, like you know, like it, it, it's it, it's hard. It's 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 hard making these decisions. But uh, anyway, look, it's the, the, there is a decision now, and uh, been an expensive lesson. Let me put it that way. And the next two stories, Matt, kind of run together. Um, but the first uh, headline we've got is Brewers bear brunt of Dan Murphy's price promise. Yes. Uh, now, the story is brewers are facing increased costs to have their beers handled by Dan Murphy's so that the Endeavour Group retailer can maintain its own margins without impacting consumers. In an email to suppliers, including small brewers, the company said it developed a cost-to-serve model that calculates the cost for it to distribute through its national distribution centre. To offset the additional handling costs associated with using the ND, and this is a direct quote from an email that was sent to some uh, suppliers, uh, using the NDC, such as cross-stocking costs, single-pick costs and line-haul costs, we will be introducing a new charge of $1.89 per carton in the NDC. Brewers were informed that the charge will apply based on the number of cartons delivered into the NDC and will be deducted from their remittance. In a media statement, an Endeavour Group spokesperson said that brewers had to meet the charge so that Dan Murphy's... And I, I have to say, this is me paraphrasing or summarising what they were saying because it was a little bit more um, putting a positive on it. The, the statement actually said, so Dan Murphy's can maintain its price promise. We have to calculate the true cost of getting our beers to stores. And to me, that says an Endeavour spokesman saying that the brewers had to meet the charge so that Dan Murphy's could maintain its pricing. Um, we had received, in a, this all broke in the media, um, and before that we had received an anonymous email that we were actually looking into uh, that said uh, Dan Murphy's had written to suppliers and given them no choice but to accept the increase. Now that was their perspective, uh, and that was one that we reported. 
This action is likely to send a number of smaller to medium Australian independent suppliers to the brink of bankruptcy, especially given uh, Endeavour Drinks controls more than 50% of the market share. This also aims to come at a time when small to medium suppliers are under significant inflationary cost pressures themselves. The email alleged the move was an example of Endeavour Drinks abusing its market power and that a number of small brewers were going to be asking the ACCC to investigate. Um, as I said, this broke in the Australian Financial Review and uh, News Limited papers um, that didn't really talk about the impact on small brewers other than saying that small brewers were going to have to pay the cost and certainly didn't look at it from small brewers, looked at it very much from a consumer's perspective in that costs weren't going to go up for beer drinkers. The next day we received a statement from the IBA. The Independent Brewers Association has expressed concern about the impact Dan Murphy's fee increase will have on small brewers and asked the ASX listed company to reconsider. Kylie Lethbridge, the CEO of the association, said, Our main aim is to work with major retailers as partners in the promotion of independent craft beer and to ensure ranging opportunities are available for our members. Aussies are lining up to buy local and are now more than ever focused on community. But with a multitude of barriers to success for a brewery, for example, energy and material costs, skill shortages and limited access to taps, and I'm going to, in, just to be very clear, this is my parentheses, and access to shelf space on national retailers' shelves, brackets, that wasn't Kylie, the retail chain is essential to ensure consumers can continue this valuable support. In this case, we, the IBA, walk a fine line and risk this often healthy relationship as their commitment not to pass this new cost on to consumers means already burdened small businesses have to absorb it. We know the big guys are unlikely to notice, but what does it mean for the independent craft brewers? A further reduction in profits, me adding parentheses, assuming they're making any, uh, close parentheses, and if they dispute the cost, the risk of losing ranging off. At a time uh, of crisis for many small businesses in this country, we would ask EDG to reconsider what might seem to be a small charge for them and will have a significant impact on many of their current suppliers, and the impact will not be a positive one. Yeah, this is a big one. This is really going to hurt. Um, and also, when you consider that $1.89, um, would, that's for per box. So if you've got a box of 16 or a box of 24, it's the same, but that impact on you for a box of 16 is going to be greater. Uh, for some, this could be their profit margin gone. Um, because you don't it, make a lot of margin. You don't make a lot selling of, yep. to the big retailers. No, you, you you don't. If you're if you're competing in that competitive space of um, volume out for that, there um, there is not much money in it. A dollar eighty nine is a big a big jump. If you, if you even look at it, let's even look at it from the eyes of the big guys. If you've got a fifty dollar case of, of of beer, this is what three point seven eight percent increase of the retail cost of it, not the wholesale cost of it. So even for the big guys, this is going to hurt. The $1.89 is going to be absorbed in the price to the consumer somewhere, right? Whether it's at the Dan Murphy's end or at the brewery saying, I can no longer sell this carton for X amount. But I think the challenge here and the reason that the um, email from Anonymous about market share is important is that often uh, Dan Murphy's and Endeavour play a role in, I'm going to use favourable language, helping the brewery to set its pricing. So basically they go and say this carton 
should be being sold for X amount. It's not like the brewery walks in and says, um, I want to sell this for um, this carton for $20 more than my competitor. Endeavour doesn't go, great, thanks very much, we'll put that on our shelves. They sit down and go, actually, here's what the consumer is willing to pay for this type of product and so on and so forth. So Endeavour actually has a role to play in setting the price that the breweries are selling it for within Dan Murphy's itself and therefore across its other, uh, across all other retail outlets, right, a and themselves. And so I think the challenge here is, the $1.89 has got to come from somewhere. And if breweries can't then say we are all collectively electing to increase our prices at our side because we can't sustain this, Endeavour are saying we need we have a price promise. So, so I think the headline of breweries have to absorb it is accurate because if not, Endeavour would be engaging in a much broader conversation that says actually the cost of all of the products in our stores needs to go up because this is not sustainable. So I think the, the important part here is that it's not like a brewery can turn around and say, I can't absorb $1.89 per package. I want to put my prices up. If they do that, Endeavour might turn around and say, thanks very much, but we're actually not going to range you anymore because we think that's too high for our consumers to pay and we don't want that in our stores. It's extremely complex. Oh, it, yeah. it, it, look, it's extremely complex and this is the sort of thing that would have a brilliant roundtable conversation with all of the parties talking about their points of view. But the point that you made there, Sabrina, is to me, like that's the one that I've heard from brewers as we've, we, we've looked into it is that Dan Murphy's is saying to us, it's a dollar eighty nine per carton to put it on, but by and large, their size sets the price. And you know, as somebody said to me, um, now I'm a brewer. I order bags of grain from my grain supplier, my malt supplier. They go into my warehouse. If the my warehouse foreman um, or for four person, their wages go up. It costs me more to move that malt from the shelf to the brew kettle. I can't pass that cost on to my malt supplier because my cost of moving it around has gone up. I have to put it on to the end consumer or absorb the cost. In this case, and this is the, the other nuance about it, because I know that Endeavour is increasingly the distributor for many breweries who have a national ranging once upon a time they might have had somebody intervening but endeavor is increasingly doing that role on behalf of them so if you want to be you know if you if, if a brewery was going to send the beer to wa themselves to be sold in a wa um, retail shop they would have to pay that and dan murphy's would be much more efficient at getting the beer over there. But at the same time, this is what happens when you have highly vertically integrated businesses and such big market-dominating businesses that they become everything. And, you know, they, they set the price by and large for what they'll take products at. They then become the distributor because that is the only way that you you, you, you do it. But I, and I think this is the point that I was going to make, which is I think that there is it is factually true that 
breweries, um, as was pointed out in a lot of the conversation, that some breweries could opt to self-distribute to multiple stores. So they could elect to not send their beer into the distribution centre mm. and have Dan Murphy send it out. If they do decide to do that, that becomes a cost to the business as well that might be a bigger cost. So essentially that's Endeavour's point. They're saying instead of you hiring trucks and delivery drivers and doing all of that, you have one truck, it comes to us, we're going to save you all of that effort, those additional employees, those additional distributors, and we're going to do the work for you. And the cost that the cost of that is $1.89. But I would also make the return argument to Endeavour that says part of the reason they've been able to grow is they no longer they don't have to have a zillion stock handlers standing there going, oh, we received six cartons from this small brewery and eight cartons from that small brewery. Now we've got to combine them because we're going to put them over here. The efficiencies on the receiving end by being 100% in control of how stock moves around is actually part of the reason Endeavour has made to grow. So whilst they're making the argument that they have been able to um, essentially take the responsibility from breweries and make it easier for them, they have also made it easier for themselves and that has in part enabled their growth. And so I don't think, you know, it's as simple as there's a fee to play. And I just want to, you know, pause on the second topic of that. None of this is to discuss beer quality of going in and sitting in national distribution centres, ambient temperature versus not, all of which has been raised uh, in response to this story. This is just talking about the pure economics of it. And so I think whilst it is available to small brewers to say we're going to opt out of that, we're going to have our own guy and we're going to drive it to our six regional stores, Endeavour can also turn around and say, yeah, thanks, that's a little bit complicated because now our stores have got to have somebody, you know, monitoring that they don't know when you're going to arrive. That's all actually getting a little bit complicated because we don't want 150 small little uh, trucks showing up at each of our individual stores because that's harder for us to manage. So actually, um, we're going to, we're just going to pick these guys, right? So a lot of the small breweries are scared of doing anything that would cause them to be deranged. So the whole point of all of this, I think it comes back to the email from Anonymous, is it actually is about market power. And on your point, Sabrina, that's, that's it. again, that's exactly it. So you've got a Brisbane brewery, they can send a beer to Perth, for example. Um, they meet the shipping costs to, to get it into an independent retailer. The independent, they charge what they charge and the independent retailer puts on the margin that includes the shipping over there. Dan Murphy's takes the same carton. They charge the brewery the cost of shipping but are, are so much more efficient. They also set the price and so, so the brewer can have the same product, you know, $10 more in the, in the independent versus the Dan Murphy's store which is, as you say, how Dan Murphy's has managed to grow because Dan Murphy's won't absorb that cost that everyone that in another world, and that's market power. Yeah, well, it's the whole the whole reason for a distribution centre, and we're probably all just saying the same thing mm. in a few different angles here. But um, from having worked in in the retail side of it um, there as well, yes, yeah, Sabrina, you're right. When you've got multiple different trucks coming in, if you've just got your own one Endeavour Group truck coming in that's got a pallet that's got 
suppliers from six or seven breweries, that's that's easy there. The other thing is too, when you're building a cost structure out uh, for selling to a store there, you take into account the freight. Uh, you either charge that on as a freight or you build that in the price. Uh, now, if you're dropping it to someone local, that's obviously a lot cheaper than sending it to WA. Um, if you're in Brisbane, for example. Uh, so the WA stores would then... Um, uh, it would be detrimental to them in the cost of that line item there, and they want to have single line costs really across the country, uh, or as close to it as, as they can, so that they can advertise in a certain way. So building a distribution centre um, makes things cheaper for them um, and makes them a, a lot more sure of how they can s- sell that price out for there. So it's all set up to benefit them. So now when there is an increase, rather than them just realising that we need to increase this on because our cost of doing business has increased but it's still a cheaper way to do it as Matt said they're making the um making the suppliers pay for it so it, it's just it, it does not real right 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 to me but when you're in the position to do it they're doing it well so I think the challenge is that they've got shareholders and and this is look this is a much broader conversation about you know share markets and how they operate and corporate governance and responsibilities but ultimately um you know it all comes down on to serve your shareholders and shareholders is to increase price it is to increase return and increase financial return and increase um uh, you, you know either through dividends or share price and so they have an incentive structure in their own business that is all about maximising short-term profit margins because uh, the share market is ultimately a short-term game. Um, and there's a whole lot of, you know, you know that leads us into a whole other conversation. But from Endeavour Corporate, I can understand how this occurs. What I think is going to be interesting is... Um, you know, and it'll be 10, 20 years to see how this plays out. We just we saw the supermarket chains get reviewed uh, in New Zealand last year or the year prior. You know, what happens when the duopoly becomes so big uh, that, you know, innovation gets stifled because um, all of the innovation that has supported Endeavour's growth has come from small to medium businesses. And, and as you pointed out, Ian, I don't think we should sneeze at what a dollar eighty nine, and I have no doubt Lion and CUB businesses aren't getting the same per carton charge, um, but whatever they are getting, um, you, you know, is going to be significant component of their their overall business because they're moving so much more beer. And the last thing I want to flag here, I think, is something that is just a bit um, of a miss in the system is that manufacturers are responsible. So breweries are responsible for the payment of the 10 cent refund on glassware, uh, on your bottles and cans. But the retailers who sell all of that product, the duopoly of retailers that mass sell those products, actually have no responsibility with respect to that 10 cents per bottle or glass or can themselves. And so, again, they're benefiting from a retail packaged environment um, with no obligation to absorb that cost or participate in that system. And it's all back on the small breweries to deal with that. And so you add the increase in those refunds of all the schemes that we know are not being particularly effective. And then you add in that you've got a duopoly of retailers and, you know, the supplier, the breweries are well and truly getting screwed. That's 
is actually something to be interesting to know um, whether there is much of a difference to the big suppliers and whether it's product related too. So if this is just beer um, as opposed to then, uh, or will it be the same charge in on a wine? Will it be the same charge as a box of spirits? Because to move those is the same cost essentially um, for them in there. However, a dollar eighty nine on a um, carton of a product that retails for $50 is, I said, pretty big percentage jump. But when you could uh, have um, six bottles of spirits that have a wholesale value of $60 plus each, so you know, have a retail value of over $100, you know, $1.89 out of your $360 wholesale price for that is, it's still money, but it's it's nowhere near the same. But that cost should, you, you imagine if it's all, all in fairness, should be the same across to everything because it takes the same amount to move one box as it does another. And the, the, the one thing that we haven't talked about, and we, we need to move on, but the, the one thing that we haven't talked about is this all comes at a time that one of the biggest competitors to small breweries in the Dan Murphy stores is Dan Murphy's own Pinnacle Brands. And so Dan Murphy can say that we don't set the price but if you're competing against the Dan Murphy's home brand, they set the price of that and you're competing against that and increasingly Absolutely. competing against that. So um, anyway, I think we've, uh, yeah, there's a lot more to come out of that one, I'm sure. So Matt, if you were a brand and you were thinking, mm, I, um, I'm going to start selling not in Dan Murphy's and I'm going to sell out of my brewery and I need something to make me um, really desirable, as a product, do, can you think of anything that you might do there? Look, if you wanted, to, even if you wanted to stand out from the pinnacle brands um, on on the on, on the shelf, I would be calling a couple of people that I know who can help you do that because they can make your brand sing, they can make your can sing, they can make your bottle sing, they can make your carton sing, they can make everything sing if you give them a call. And those guys are the guys at Rallings Label Stickers and Packaging. You can give them a call on one 852 235 or email sales at au to see how they can help your brand sing. I always want to burst in a song, but I won't do that to anybody. I was just going to ask, can they help you <laughs> sing, you know? <laughs> We're well into reporting season, Matt, for um, publicly listed companies uh, for the first half of last year of this financial year. So um, revenue grows at Good Drinks Australia. Yes, uh, Good Drinks Australia, owner of Gage Roads Brewing Company, has seen an increase in revenue and sales in the first half of the financial year. They posted their results to the ASX this week, showing that the group earned an EBITDA of $6.1 million, uh, which Good Drinks said was a strong result given what they said was softer macroeconomic conditions. Good Drinks reported a total group revenue of $59.2 million, up 80% from the previous corresponding period, while 14.1 million litres of beer were sold, a 35% increase. The company said this was led by a significant increase in national distribution growth, which saw a 98% increase. And again, I would need to sit back and compare numbers for previous years. Uh, so this is you know, us reporting their results. Sales of its own brands also grew 12%, which it said outperformed Australia's beer and craft markets, citing data from IRI, which showed a 79 and 1.7% decline in the categories respectively. And to your point, Sabrina, yes, um, for people that don't know, um, when we report GDA, we don't sit down and say one day, or you know any other um, company's reports, we don't sit down and one day and sort of say, we're going to report good drinks this week. They report to the ASX to a schedule. They, uh, as a publicly listed company, they have to, I believe, 
report quarterly and half yearly and then have an annual report. When that comes out, we report on it. Um, if those results are good, we report the results. Um, if they're bad, we report them. When they're bad, they try and make them look good and our job is to try and dig a little bit into it uh, for that. So that's yeah, for, for people who ask from time to time, you know, why is this company getting reviewed um, more often? They're a national retailer, they're ASX listed, they give a very good indication of how the market is going because you can see whether they're up or down and it's information that is publicly available. Um, we would love to have results from companies that don't have to publish their results. Unfortunately, we don't, otherwise we would. Related to that one, Matt, just as part of that semi-annual reporting, Good Drinks announced new appointments. Good Drinks uh, has Mr. Aaron Heary, who's been with the company for a long time, and he was responsible. For, he was the executive director responsible for strategy, brand, and hospitality. He has been appointed as executive director for strategy, brand, and hospitality. He's been with the company since 2004, and he's held the dual roles of chief operating officer and chief strategy officer for Good Drinks since 2014. Uh, Phil McClintock was also promoted to the roles of chief operating officer, and he's been with Good Drinks since 2013, first as financial controller and then head of commercial. So, uh, yep, yeah, again, and for anyone that's asking, uh, we do have a regular um, uh, people moves section. But again, as a, you know, one of the largest breweries in the country, um, ASX listed, these are very significant appointments. And, uh, you know, if, if my favourite brewery, Dapto Brewery, um, you know, <laughs> puts, puts, a, puts a new bar manager in, Probably not going to report on that, but you know, when the an ASX listed company does, you know, uh, we, we report on that. A whole bunch of things jumped out at me from this, but of course, last year we talked a lot about uh, Good Drinks Australia's strategy um, to bring in some brands um, and take on the sales and marketing. I think it was for Molson Coors, and um, they've obviously acquired Stomping Ground. They did a whole lot around increasing their national footprint and their marketing and distribution. Um, and they cite, you, uh, you have cited that in the article and they cite that as a reason that they've been successful and it's clear that that strategy is paying off for them. Uh, and then the second thing I would say is both of these appointments are from staff that have been in the business for a long time, 2004. 14 and 2013 respectively what that says to me if i'm observing all of the results together is that they have a strong internal culture that they have a succession plan in place for for key uh, senior roles and executive roles in the business that they're constantly growing and improving their staff and if you have that positive culture uh, and you are also setting strategy and meeting those strategies. Both of those things line up as um, good news for Good Drinks Australia. Mm. It's not been reflected in the share price, <laughs> which is interesting. But we'll again, we'll wait and see. Moving on, big story this week. We talked about their teaser campaign a couple of weeks ago, but CUB formally launches Powers Return. I was at the brand launch yesterday. Um, so they've officially launched Powers. There was a big gala dinner last night that had Alfie Langer and Wally Lewis and John Rebo and, you know, uh, uh, a cast of thousands all celebrating the 80s. You know, a bunch of white men celebrating the 80s effectively. 
Sounds thrilling. We have to do what we have to do to report the news, Sabrina. And uh, <laughs> I went in, had one or two, and uh, I wasn't there for, for that long. So I did want to hear Bernie Powers speak, and uh, it was very interesting. Um, the move signals an important shift in focus towards strong state-paced brands for the nation's largest brewer, which is really interesting because Powers exploded onto the Queensland market in the 1980s, quickly taking 20% of the beer market before withering following its 1993 acquisition by CUB. At that time, CUB was focused on taking brands such as VB and Carlton Draft National. Um, CUB's Queensland State Sales Manager Ian Giles said the company had learned a lot from that. He did want to comment on what the team at the time did, but they're very aware of what works within Queensland and we've had a couple of successful brands with a reasonable idea of what the recipe of success is and I think we might start seeing state brands getting a little bit more love as people, beer drinkers, go back to a slightly more parochial and my interpretation of that is, you know, I think post-COVID, people are feeling a little bit more resonating with small local brands, and this is a way that a big national, uh, you know, producer can start to build into some of that uh, local parochial passion. Yeah, I'm interested to see what will happen out of that. We talked about it the other week and seeing what will unfold with other ones that they want to do. Um, interesting to see how the uptake will be from um, the consumer. Um, it's not something that's really in my close circle of beer drinking friends to be drinking, but uh, you know, I'll hear from other people about um, what they do from there. Uh, it's interesting looking at the, the guests and so forth that you're talking about it from there. And when we were talking about it the other week, something that I, I was thinking at the time but didn't bring up was one of their impacts um, with their launch was launching as the Brisbane Broncos title sponsor. Um, at the time, and I remember being there and thinking, what the hell's this Powers? Yeah. And uh, people say, oh, it's a beer. And it's like, well, where is this beer? And it's like, well, you can't get it yet. And, you know, th- that was a, a brilliant timing of a launch when Brisbane finally got um, or put a team into the what was then the New South Wales uh, Rugby League competition. Um, but, yeah, let, let's let's see how it rolls out. Let's see how people take it up and let's see what they do then with, with, with other states and other regions in there. I actually wish we had more time to discuss this today because you've hit on there was a certain perfect storm. It was Queensland had Expo 88 at exactly the same time and took Queensland to the world. The Broncos entered the New South Wales Rugby League, you know. So finally, Queensland got to show those, you know. We we get to prove that our players were better than their players week their to players. week. You know, it wasn't just three times a year. We were better. Bondi had bought Forex <laughs> and had put, you know, um, St George's Avenue um, address on all of the states. You know, and Forex had an eighty five percent market share at that stage, and suddenly they've got a West Australian street address on their packaging and the Bond Brewing sign on the side, and powers captured that state pride that you bondy um there was so much going on that it exploded and you know as bernie power said in um the, the quote it was he'd been told that it was the most successful beer launch in the country in stonewood i think it was 22 million liters the capacity apparently of the adela brewery is 100 million liters um when it sold after you know five years so that is extraordinary growth whether they can capture that now Really don't know. Yeah, that, that will be interesting to see how that rolls. I could see it going either way and really, really don't know. And yeah, fully fully agree that the the, launch, the initial launch for Powers is probably the most um, influential beer 
in the last century. Um, you know, absolutely in in that way of in a business what it, sense, in a business sense, changing. Yes. Yeah. If we're talking about in a flavour perspective of beer itself. No, there's, um, there's. I'd have to have a think about that, but one that's. I'd say little creatures, Pacific Isles, and little creatures and Pacific Isles. Yes, I, I would. That would be the two that have come to to my mind too. But as far as a business sense and a brand and pushing out there, it is the most influential that that we've seen in this probably in this country ever. It's been really interesting to see all the comments in the Radio Bruce News Facebook group linking to the original article about Reshes. Um, we had uh, folks visiting the facility and really saying like. To your point, we wonder whether this nostalgia play is going to work. And we trust us, this is a story we are going to return to. So switching now to other news, um, Matt, of course, the Beer is a Conversation um, that went out this week was with Kylie Lethbridge and Richard Watkins um, in what's now become an annual update from um, the Independent Brewers Association about what they're focused on in 2023. So listeners, if you haven't had a listen to that, um, it's really great chat about what's there and it covers actually some of the topics that underlie you know some of the market issues focused with edg so um worth a listen for the perspective of independent brewers in that um and then matt the other news in since we last met on last friday last saturday i think the hottest 100 results came out for all of the other lists so we saw um the hottest 100 new releases top 100 indie beers and the 100 to 200. Um, encourage everybody to go to look at it. Um, if it hadn't been such a big news week, <laughs> we haven't even co- like, time we haven't it. even covered it. It's been so much. <laughs> There's been so much, but I think you know the the number one thing to point out is that the number one new release of the hottest 100 uh, for 2022 was Better Be a Ginger Beer, uh, followed by number two, which was Your Mate Stilly and Bolter Brewing, um, number three. All of them appeared in the top 40 of the main list. But other than that, there are only seven beers inside the Hottest 100. So new releases, there are only seven on that list Mm. that made it into the top 100. And it had to go back as far as 617. Wow, okay. So this really highlights how hard it is to get beers released in that first year to the um, inside the Hottest 100. So congrats to, you know, Better Beer, Your Mates and Bolter, who... We're on the top of the with other beers towards the top of the hottest 100 in getting their in getting their beers on that list, and so it really shows sort of the strength of engagement around those brands. And do you know something that's not hard to do? Oh, I feel a segue coming on on one of these. If you want some yeast to pitch from one litre to 100 litres at greater than 2 billion cells per litre, it is not hard to get because Bluestone Yeast can supply just that. Whether you are after a one-off or looking for a weekly, fortnightly or monthly delivery of yeast, that is easy too, my friends, because Bluestone Yeast has you covered. Uh, you can reach out to them by calling Derek on 03-8518-3172 or info at bluestoneyeast.com.au and talk all things yeast. And I say that because we have a Brewery of the Week, Sabrina. Yeah, so um, we, you and I, had the opportunity to go to both uh, Bent Spoke Town Centre and Ben Spoke the Brewery and what is going to be their new sort of um, function centre in their barrel room uh, while we were in Canberra. And it's worth pointing out, um, you know, that we had that it was packed because it was Hottest 100 weekend um, and everybody, you know, full of all sorts of different folks. Again, the types of folks we want to see in breweries. Um, and, you know, it was a really positive, um, enjoyable experience. It, I couldn't. I've been promising Rich I'd go down 
for years, as he uh, has made a, a comment on the podcast a number of times. Um, and I think might have even said on the uh, IBA chat that we had and uh, could not have been uh, yeah, more pleased that I did. And uh, if, if you do visit the brewery, um, the beers that you have at the brew pub are all brewed in the brew pub. They have a larger production brewery that duplicates a lot of the beers. But if you are having crankshaft in the brew pub, it is the crankshaft that is brewed in the brew pub. And it's yeah, a crack slightly different than if you buy it in a can. But, you know, again, just because of the, the different thing. And uh, I really, really like that about it. So uh, Yeah, great experience. Now, before we move on to the last topic, we're going to thank Ian um, for joining us. Thank you very much, Ian, uh, for, for coming back this week. Oh, my pleasure as always. Good to chat. Looking forward to uh, hopefully we'll get you back next week. Yes, looking forward to it. See you, Ian. See you, Sabrina. Thank you. So, Matt, in um, other news, the last topic that we wanted to cover off on this week was an update on the Ballistic Brewing Company and Ballistic Springfield Company's voluntary administration. This is a little bit sensitive. Ian signed off. um, He is a creditor um, of Ballistic Brewery because up until recently he was an employee and he is a creditor of the business. Um, so just as a matter of policy, um, you know, he shouldn't be part of the, our conversation about it. But it also obviously puts us in a position where Ian and I have, have been very good friends for a long time. He's a co-host of our podcast. Ian has very fairly not talked about the, the, the situation with me personally because – well, it would put him in a compromised position if I reported anything that came from somebody that was, wasn't named because the assumption would be Ian and as a creditor can impact him. So that, that's why Ian's not part of this part of the conversation um, where some people might have thought that it might have been a little bit higher up. Um, now, the first creditors meeting uh, of Ballistic Beer Company and separately, the first creditors meeting of the Ballistic Springfield Company because Ballistic wasn't one single proprietary limited company. A number of the brew pubs operated as standalone businesses and they continue to trade. Ballistic Salisbury, which is Ballistic Beer Company and Ballistic Springfield, which were separate companies, have gone into administration. They both had creditors meetings. We clearly are not creditors so we don't have a copy of anything that came from that um, and don't know what came out of that meeting um, and can't report on so we ha- we haven't there is nothing official that we can report um, yesterday and I, I stress this about the different companies because yesterday there was some discussion about bonds airlines had announced that they had a partnership with ballistic beer and a lot of people were saying they were in receivership Ballistic Beer Co. on their Facebook promoted. Oh, Ballistic Beer Co. That yes. Sorry. Thank you that for they clarifying that. Excited <laughs> about their beer on Bonza. Can you see how difficult? <laughs> so, because um, there's only one Ballistic Beer Co. Facebook page, but I, I presume, and again, this only happened yesterday. I haven't had a chance to look into it. That they were referring to one of the companies that's not in administration, or maybe it wasn't. I haven't had a chance to look at it. Don't want to speculate because there is so much going on here. So it, it's relevant to say that the whole company, like not all of the entities have gone into administration. Um, they certainly haven't gone into re- receivership yet. We are trying to get to the, the, the bottom of that. Now, 
There has been some discussion about the status of workers at Ballistic Beer Company and Ballistic Salisbury because we understand that a number of staff are currently stood down um, and across the business. We didn't know that at the time that we published our first article, which was two weeks ago, which was when everything was uncertain. We haven't published anything about it since then because we were waiting for the creditors meeting that we're still waiting for and there is you know, confirmation that um, staff have been stood down. I still don't have a figure for exactly how many across the whole business. We are looking into it. We also don't have confirmation about whether this is a permanent situation or whether or not you know, there is a chance for these workers to be reappointed by the company. We are conscious of not reporting anything that may negatively impact workers in other ballistic venues or cause divisions or upset for staff that have retained their roles and haven't been stood down or impact the staff affected as they seek other employment if they're seeking other employment. Um, opinions differ around this um, and you know everyone can have an opinion about that but the workers haven't been ignored is all I will say. Matt it's needless to say this is a moving feast there is only so much publicly available information and so our reporting at Bruce News like with all of our other reporting is based on facts that can be confirmed and verified and so um, this is just an update on the stuff that we yes. know is out there in the ether. Um, without the without um, it will go to print in a in a formal sense into a news article when the work of journalism to confirm facts and get information is complete. But um, it seems that there is certainly an appetite amongst some of our listeners. Um, because this is such a significant brand in the brewing landscape to have more frequent updates. Mm. Um, so we thought it was timely. It, it, it's timely to do that, yeah. And it's also important that the public statements that have been made from the brewery are that they're hoping to trade out of it. Yeah. That there is attempts made to attract investment to the business. We're being very careful not to draw attention to the business that may cast negatively on that and thus may jeopardise the jobs of existing workers as well as people that have been stood down. So, Matt, it sounds like there's, you know, there's a lot of moving pieces to this and no doubt in the next couple of weeks as more information becomes available um, and the VA keeps going, there'll be more reporting on the situation. Yes. And with that, that wraps the news for this week, of which it's been a very busy week of news uh, for the brewing industry in Australia. And so your hosts have been me, Matt Kierkegaard, and Ian Watson, who you heard from earlier. The show is produced by Vivian Tapalovich and edited by Joe Helder. We want to thank Rowling's Label Stickers and Packaging and Bluestone News for their support in making this episode possible. Thank you to all of you for your contributions by email, text, phone, or in the Radio Brews News group. Uh, we get hundreds of them, um, and so if we haven't responded to you directly, thank you. We do read them all. There are some really interesting conversations that we just haven't had time for yep. this week, um, and so listeners who know that they've sent some stuff in, we will be picking up hopefully next week if it's quieter. Please rate and review the podcast on Apple or Spotify to help more folks in the industry find the show, and we'll chat next week. We're out.